Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac Meek-Sweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. We uh, are uh, ready uh, for anything. The Prime Minister had a wild NAFTA ride as he visited Washington and Mexico City. It's all thanks to President Donald Trump, who made remarks that again put the future of the free trade agreement in doubt and put forward proposals that many see as poison pills. So, will NAFTA survive? And could Canada land a separate deal on its own with the U.S.? We kick off our show with International Trade Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. After that, we take you inside the Oval Office with McLean's reporter Megan Campbell, who was there for all the NAFTA action. She joins us with her behind-the-scenes observations from Trudeau's trip. The Liberal government is approaching the midway point of its mandate, with next Thursday marking two years since the election that brought the grits to office. The McLean's panel weighs in on the first half of the Trudeau government, while also discussing the tax troubles that are dogging the Liberals and their finance minister. And we end off our show speaking with Terry Mosher, a political cartoonist better known by his pen name Aislinn. He has spent 50 years in the business and joins us to talk about politics, sex jokes, and working in the digital age. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. It is very important and very possible to get a win-win-win. Negotiating a NAFTA deal, it's time after all of these years, and we'll see what happens. It's possible we won't be able to make a deal, and it's possible that we will. There is a, a certain level of unpredictability uh, these days, over these past months, uh, that we need to be conscious of. If we can't make a deal, it'll be terminated and that'll be fun. They're going to do well, we're going to do well, but maybe that won't be necessary. Circumstances are uh, often challenging and we have to be ready for anything, and we are. It's possible we won't be able to reach a deal with one or the other, but in the meantime, we'll make a deal with one. But I think we have a chance to do something uh, very creative that's good for Canada, Mexico, and the United States. We will not be walking away from the table. What a crazy week for NAFTA, as the narrative around the renegotiations of this pivotal trade deal just kept evolving during Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's trips to Washington and Mexico City. The Prime Minister first took off for the U.S. Capitol for some high-level meetings, one on Capitol Hill with the Influential Ways and Means Committee and another at the White House with President Donald Trump himself. Then he was off to Mexico City to meet with the Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. Now, the storyline basically shifted kind of like this. The Prime Minister is making a courtesy call as negotiations shift to the more contentious issues. Then it changed to NAFTA talks in trouble as Trudeau heads to the U.S. and Mexican capitals for talks with his counterparts. Then it was Donald Trump is floating the idea of killing NAFTA and signing a bilateral deal with Canada. Then it was Trudeau is saying Canada is preparing for all options. And then finally we heard Canada and Mexico are showing a united front saying they will not walk away from the negotiating table. All of this came as the fourth round of talks actually began across the river from Washington in Arlington, Virginia, with the U.S. putting forward some demands that many have seen as poison pills, measures designed to possibly sabotage the talks. These are items like a sunset clause that would require all three countries to approve the deal every five years or it's terminated. Also, a demand on auto parts that have left 
industry insider stunned. It includes requiring all cars sold without tariffs to include 85% North American content, 50% U.S. content, an elaborate detailed listing of the parts that really didn't exist in 1994 when NAFTA first came into effect. There's a lot to unpack here, and to speak more about the twists and turns of NAFTA talks and the future of the deal, I was able to speak with International Trade Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, who gave me a call Friday before the Canadian delegation left Mexico. So, Minister Champagne, thank you very much for joining me on the show and for calling from Mexico City. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with all of you. Given, you know, the comments from U.S. President Donald Trump and everything we're seeing at the negotiating table, is the writing on the wall for NAFTA, is NAFTA at death's door? No, I would say, listen, we're in the fourth round. We always knew that it would be difficult, that would be at some time it would be tough. But what we need to look at is the long game and making sure that uh, whatever is put on the table would be, um, would be a good deal for Canada. That's what we're striving for. And I think the Prime Minister has been very clear, you know, let's be constructive. We'll look at what other nations propose. But we're always going to be on the lookout for Canadian workers, Canadian family, Canadian industries. And we knew from the start, Cormac, that there would be times like that where discussions would be tougher. And I would say the fact that the prime minister uh, was in Washington, was in Mexico, is also sending a strong signal. We want to engage with them. They are our largest training partner. And, um, you know, I was just with him uh, today here in Mexico. You know, Mexico is our third largest training partner, $41 billion. So, Whilst we, it's NAFTA first, we're putting all our efforts. We have the best team on the ground. We know where we're going. Uh, it's also important for us to look at diversification, and that's what we're doing. Is Canada willing to negotiate a bilateral deal with the U.S. should NAFTA fail? Well, I'd say NAFTA, as you know, is a trilateral deal. So you need the three parties to do that. That's what we've been uh, engaging with our Mexican and American partners. I think when you look at that, you know that this agreement has provided millions of good middle-class jobs in each and every country. This has provided unparalleled prosperity, and that's what we're bringing the message, whether it's in Washington or in Mexico, and I think people understand it. You know, we were with the Senate of Mexico. People understand that what we need to do, the big goal in that is, how can we make North America more productive? How can we build more in North America so that we become more competitive and then sell to the world? That's the real big price. Being competitive, manufacturing here in North America, and then selling to the world. But, Minister, you have a U.S. president open, openly talking about killing the deal and possibly uh, creating a bilateral deal with Canada. And the Prime Minister has said that Canada will be ready for anything. So is a bilateral deal with the U.S. as opposed to a NAFTA agreement a part of anything? Well, I would say it's NAFTA first because we know that this agreement reflects also the manufacturing that you find in North America. We know that our economies are integrated. You know that our supply chain is integrated. That's, that's the real nature. This is not a relation where you find a buyer and a seller. The real difference in North America is that we make things together. So any decision on one side of the border would have impact on both sides of the borders. And that's what we're really making sure that people understand that what we need to do is to become more competitive, manufacture more and sell to the world. Because this agreement, and as you know, businesses have planned over decades. This is an agreement which has been, what, two decades old, has been amended 12 times already. So we need to modernize it. Prime Minister has been clear uh, with his counterparts that we need to modernize, but recognizing that this is an agreement that has provided prosperity both in the United States and Canada and Mexico. 
But would be Canada be prepared for the alternative options should these NAFTA talks not work out? Well, Canada is prepared for diversification. You know, just recently we have the free trade agreement uh, coming into force with Europe. As you know, we're looking at the Pacific Alliance, which is another trading block with uh, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, and Chile. We're also looking at the Asia-Pacific region. So we're very active because we understand that's the smart thing to do. But we also understand that, you know, our NAFTA uh, deal is very important. We want to be constructive at the table. We want to be making sure that whatever is proposed is in the best interest of Canada. And I can say we have the best team uh, on the ground, best prepared. And, uh, you know, we're not going to react to every comments, every remarks. What we want for Canada is a good deal, not just any deal. Okay, so uh, Prime Minister has said he will not walk away from the table. So what happens if there is no compromise from the U.S. on these contentious issues that seem like they're non-starters for Canada and Mexico, such as a sunset clause of every five years and these uh, new terms for American content for auto parts? Well, you know, it's just not the Canadian way to walk away. I mean, when things are tough, we engage. That's the message of the prime minister was really we're going to be engaging with our partners. You know, we consulted with the Americans. We were here in Mexico consulting with the Mexican. Uh, what we'll do, we'll take every proposal seriously, uh, but we'll also be constructive. And we'll tell our partners when that doesn't work for us. And clearly, uh, people will see that Canada, whilst being constructive, uh, also understand the reality in North America. And what we're trying to make sure to our negotiator is that every proposal people understand really what are the consequences of what's being proposed and what could be the unintended consequences, making sure that people realize that whatever is proposed would have consequences in each country of the NAFTA region. But what happens if the U.S. doesn't budge? Well, you know, we're going to continue to engage with them. You know, we're not going to leave the table. That's just not Canadian. Canadians engage when it's tough. That's what we're doing. And we're putting also arguments on the table. And as you know, industry has been siding with Canada in many respects as well, understanding that when you have a relationship as unique as the one we have, where you know, many of the components before they, they go in the final product would cross the border six, seven times, you know, these rules that we have have provided prosperity and millions of good jobs, middle-class jobs. And you know, President Trump ran in an agenda to create you know, middle-class jobs. This is what this agreement has been doing. So it is our job, Team Canada, to engage with, uh, obviously, the White House, but also governors, senators, mayors, to make sure that people understand this is just a good deal, but it needs modernization. That's why we're at the table. Do you think the President of the United States, as an office holder, has the right to unilaterally end the North American Free Trade Agreement without congressional approval? Well, I mean, that's, that's a question for the Americans. What I can say is that we have been engaging. You've seen the prime minister in his visit in Washington, engaging not just with the White House, but all the other constituents, because we understand that a decision like that would have a huge impact on both sides of the border. So we want to make sure that um, the American people and American industry understand that what is being put on the table would have consequences. And therefore, that's what we're engaging with business, with civil society, with mayors, with congressmen, congresswomen, to make sure that they really understand that what are the impact of what's being put on the table by the White House. And how key are those allies outside of the White House? Well, I think people understand. Let me take the Boeing Bombardier uh, issue recently. You know, I was making call to senators in the United States, and they said, you know, what Boeing has been trying to do in Canada is to kill aerospace industry, we will never allow that to happen. 
And I was just making sure that they understand, for example, that a lot of the parts are also made in the United States, that an action like that would not only cost hundreds of millions of dollars to suppliers in the United States, but also could also kill thousands of jobs in the United States. So every time we're engaging with them is to make sure, you know, we exchange about $2 billion of goods and services every day. We are the largest trading partner in the United States. We're the largest client. We buy more from the United States than China, the U.K., and Japan combined. So when you say these kind of things to our American partners, they do listen. And that's what we want to make sure that people understand that the real big goal here is how can we become more competitive? How can we make our industry more competitive, manufacture more in North America, and then sell to the world? That's the real big price for all of us in that game. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure anytime. Always a pleasure talking to you. That was International Trade Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, who was speaking to us from Mexico about the future of NAFTA amid tense talks and an unpredictable U.S. administration. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, we speak with Megan Campbell from McLean's, who was tracking the heat in the White House during Trudeau's visit. The McLean's panel is here to weigh in on the trouble with taxes and the two-year anniversary of the Trudeau government, and we speak with one of Canada's top political cartoonists. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we talk about the Midway Blues, NAFTA, and taxes with the McLean's panel. And we hear from one of the country's top political cartoonists. But first, when the Prime Minister makes a trip to places like Washington or Mexico City to meet his North American counterparts, most Canadians only hear a brief report or a small clip on the news. But there's usually a heck of a lot more going on behind the scenes. McLean's writer Megan Campbell was traveling with Prime Minister Trudeau and joins me now by phone from Mexico to tell me about the trip. Yeah, thanks. L let's go back to that moment in the Oval Office when Trump started throwing out almost every option you could imagine with NAFTA, um, talking about, you know, landing a deal, not landing a deal, possibly, uh, you know, tearing up NAFTA and reaching bilateral deals with Canada and Mexico. It, 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 what was it like to be in that room? Right. Well, I was quite surprised when uh, Trump started using words like awesome and massive to describe his nuclear arsenal. And it was super interesting to then not so much focus on Trump, but then as, you know, the Canadian media ha has done, looked at Trudeau and uh, his wife's uh, reactions and seeing Trudeau sitting there kind of, you know, his lips pursed in a very kind of neutral smile and Sophie, you know, nodding her head, eyes quite wide. Melania, on the other hand, was sitting there, you know, some people who were remarking she was almost like a robot, did not seem to move uh, whatsoever, stiff as could be. So it was certainly... Uh, Trudeau, had his know, Trudeau had his poker face on while, while Trump was just going in every direction. Absolutely, yes. You wrote about the feeling in the room... Uh, you, I think you described it as, as the humidity of the heat turning up in the Oval Office. What, was that mainly the media, or could you really sense that from the others in the room? It was 
for one, a very hot and humid day in Washington. And I sort of wanted to see exactly how hot this discussion would get. So I actually brought in a little thermometer, hygrometer device, uh, <laughs> which was tricky getting through uh, White House security. I was a little nervous, but it, it made it through. And um, I actually measured the humidity and the temperature, 25.2 degrees Celsius in there. And um, it was 68% humidity as Trump brought up his, you know, discussions of nuclear arsenals. So it was certainly tense. As I mentioned, Melania sitting there incredibly stiff. Uh, Trump in his hands, you know, braced as if he was ready to either spring or snatch something or who knows what he could have done, but he was sitting literally at the edge of his yellow seat and there was no saying what he would do. You then traveled with Trudeau to Mexico, uh, where he met with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. And of course, NAFTA was on the table, but it was a very different tone, I thought anyway, uh, from the news conferences and the discussions in Washington to the news conference and the discussions with the Mexican president. How, how did you see the tone change? Certainly, there was this air of everything being absolutely elaborate in the welcoming of the president, uh, sorry, in the welcoming of the prime minister, and there were trumpets going. It was almost like grand opera. In, in, in the way that he was welcomed and in the way that it was all uh, executed. And it almost seemed fake. Uh, it seemed almost overcompensating for the tensions that were, you know, going on behind the scenes. I, I, I was talking with one uh, one person as well, familiar with negotiations, who was saying, you know, for, for Mexico, these negotiations are not just about the economy by any means. It's about uh, geopolitics, and ultimately it's about respect. Mexico has been disrespected uh, tremendously by Trump, and so them uh, negotiating this table, they're really trying to uh, maintain and even improve, I think, the respect that they have uh, with Canadians. And, and what about Trudeau's changing narrative in all of this? Trudeau didn't mention anything about uh, pursuing a bilateral agreement with the U.S. and pushing Mexico under the bus. But certainly everybody in Mexico who I've talked with is very familiar with the term throwing under the bus, and it's on their mind. Trudeau tried to absolutely avoid this the topic and, you know, talked about fraternity and brotherhood, uh, or at least the president did, and they um, shook hands. They, uh, <laughs> the, the Mexican reporters seem to love Trudeau, and they are certainly maintaining a, maintaining a, a, a dual-term offensive, it seems. Trudeau in Washington talked about being prepared for all options when asked about that bilateral deal, and he chose not to say it carefully uh, when he was standing next to the Mexican president. Uh, what does that tell you about the fine, fine line that, uh, that leaders have to walk when negotiating such a trilateral deal? I guess it's kind of like um, people skills that you are forced to learn in kindergarten, you know, when there's three people and one feels left out and 
it's horrible for the person that feels left out, but if you're uh, a good friend, you'll try to mediate between the, the, the all three. Um, it's, it's certainly a balance. If there was one indication, though, that uh, maybe there was some tension that, you know, Trudeau did let slip through, perhaps, is that, you know, when he was, uh, when he and uh, the Mexican president were delivering uh, speeches in yesterday evening um, at the palace, Mexican president made his his speech, and then Trudeau made his speech, and there was this kind of pause at the end. You know, everybody was clapping, and it, it was one of the situations where you knew Trudeau, he would probably go over and give the guy a good handshake and pat on the back and even a hug or something like this, and there was this hesitation. And I don't know if that stood out to other people, but it certainly stood out to me. All right. Overall, do you think this is a, a positive or a negative trip for the Prime Minister? I think it's a, a good move. I think it's positive. I think um, when I was talking with this uh, person from the president's office in Mexico, they're saying that, you know, Mexico has been trying to get Trudeau to come to Mexico City for a long time for different reasons, not specific to NAFTA. And it was this NAFTA negotiation that I think was the, the decisive factor that finally got uh, Trudeau down to Mexico. So they were happy about that, for sure. All right, that was McLean's writer Megan Campbell, who was traveling with the Prime Minister to Washington and Mexico City. Still to come, the McLean's panel on the midway point of the Trudeau government and political cartoonist Terry Mosher discusses his craft. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, arguably the top political cartoonist in the country, Terry Mosher, is here to talk about politics, sex jokes, and working in the digital age. But first... It's now time for the McLean's panel, and I'm joined by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you very much for being here, guys. Hi. Yeah. Okay, so coming up this week, we are going to have a very big, I guess, anniversary, if you will. Two years on the job for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government. Uh, October 19th, 2015 is when they were elected. Uh, so, Paul, how do you think the first two years have gone for this Liberal government? In a lot of ways, not very badly. The opposition uh, to the Liberals hasn't coalesced. Uh, I think the New Democrats in particular will regret having taken as long as they have to um, decide to find a replacement and to find that replacement. Andrew Scheer is basically a big question mark with the, uh, with the Canadian people. And on the key question of economic performance, Canada is doing very well. In his 2016 budget, um, Bill Morneau said he wanted to add a point a year to economic growth, and everyone said, well, that just can't be done. The IMF has added a point to its growth projections for Canada since May. Of, of course, it, it's always hard to trace that directly to any government action, but what the hell? I think the Liberals will take that point uh, and the billions of dollars in extra revenue that come with it. On keeping the odd, very youth-oriented voter coalition that brought him to power, I think Justin Trudeau has done pretty well, appearing on podcasts and YouTube channels and uh, in non-traditional venues like that. Uh, I think that goes a long way. 
you know, you can tell there's a but coming. And the but is this government often seems uh, reckless, inattentive to detail, inattentive to the stewardship of millions, even billions of dollars of, of taxpayer money, and unsure how to make simple decisions. Are, is there going to be a peacekeeper mission? Could we have a languages commissioner or a, uh, a privacy commissioner? How about appointing judges to administer the law in superior courts across the land? Things like that. That's where the government falls down, is it often seems to be pretty good on the big stuff and uh, increasingly inattentive on uh, on thousands of details. And, and John, the first two years have been like a big honeymoon for Trudeau, but uh, we were talking earlier about polls now showing that they're hitting a midway lull yeah. and uh, they're really losing a lot of the, I guess, you know, fan support that they had beforehand. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a feeling right now, I think really just in the last few weeks, that something has gone a little, the fizz has gone out of it a little bit. I guess it has to do with cumulative bad days, right? You have the finance minister besieged on, on small business tax stuff. You've got uh, a, a variety of ministers not seeming nimble and, and on their game. But can I just back up, look, on the, on the first two years, like, one thing that I can't help but notice is that almost every time you ask someone in the government, what are your accomplishments? They point to the same couple of things, the Canadian child benefit, the middle class tax cut. These came in the first months of their of being in power. They've been in power two years. Like it's sort of like first six months, we got some stuff done. Uh, and, and since then, it's been a lot of growing pains and, and trying to get ministers in a position where they've got some traction in their portfolio. And so far, I haven't seen a lot of that. Now, some of that is is by dint of the fact that things they've taken on are ambitious, like climate change policy, marijuana legalization. Those things are going to need till the last half of their mandate before they can really hope to show uh, concrete progress. So part of this is just, uh, it's the schedule at which they're rolling stuff out. But for sure, if you look right now, you're looking at a government that's still coasting a little bit on early momentum rather than anything that they built up in the last weeks and months. So then what do the next two years look like uh, in the lead up to the 2019 vote? Essentially continued denial uh, and a willingness to admit that they're doing some big stuff wrong. Uh, this would be a government that would spend uh, 300000 instead of 200000 on its on the, on the cover of its budget <laughs> next year. Uh, or some pretty serious attempts to get back to the basic business of government. And, and by pretty basic, I mean, I have in mind something like replacing Bill Morneau this week as finance minister with Ralph Goodale, mm. finding the button on the back of uh, Scott Bryson to turn him on and, and, uh, and get him to start acting like a Treasury Board president who uh, is, is capable of saying no to any conceivable government expenditure. I think this government is, is, is looking more and more like one that um, doesn't think or act like the Canadians that most Canadians have ever known and is a little bit too interested in swanning around with billionaires. And I think that, that it is, it is, it is um, quicker than I would have expected. And really, as John says, in the last several weeks, it started to hurt this government badly. And either they'll fix it or they'll face their ruin. It's fascinating to hear Paul mentioning Ralph Goodale. I, th I think it's, there's something paradoxical here, right? Where when Trudeau names his cabinet, all the attention is on the youth, the fact that most of these people don't have a background in politics, and that was all presented as positive, diverse, lots of women, lots of a variety of interesting backgrounds. And, and some of these people, I, I mean, really interesting, impressive backgrounds, but not backgrounds in politics or even in the traditional feeder industries to politics like 
major law firms, you know. So, so you've got this, but, but now when people look around for solace in the Liberal Party, they say, geez, Ralph Goodell does a good job over there. It's, it's fascinating that the, the one old guard, clearly old guard figure in the cabinet is often held up as their most reliable performer now. There's something telling about that. If you had to look at the, at the, at the bright side for Liberals, there are still rookie new political figure ministers who, who are not, in my, have not stumbled, I would say, Jane Philpott, uh, Catherine McKenna, uh, even even the new immigration minister, uh, uh, Ahmed Hussein, has, although there's been some debate about his, the way he's communicated some issues, still not nothing that could be described as a, as, a, as a bad stumble for this guy. So there's a number of people that they'd be looking to think, well, it's not all Morneau, Melanie Jolie having trouble selling her Netflix, which th- that's not the entire story, it's just that they need the other part of that story to start looming larger in the next next, well, preferably right away, but certainly over the next two years. And I think it's very interesting that uh, in the first two years of the mandate, the Liberals tried to champion themselves as the party for the taxpayer, and yet now the problems that are being caused for the Liberals is taxes. It's the very issue that they're facing a lot of heat over, whether it be the uh, issue with the tax changes that uh, are going to be addressed on Monday in a caucus meeting, or even this employee discount issue. Now, they're trying to back away from these things, but it still seems like the taxes are really what's hurting them in the end. And 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 really a sort of a thoughtful management of the public purse in general, mm. or any kind of uh, even nodding acquaintance with the business community in this country. I mean, conservatives used to argue, even in power, conservatives used to argue kind of bitterly that uh, big business, Bay Street, the big banks in this country were really liberal. You know, TD Bank was a nest of liberals, and mm. you could go on and on and on. And that, so it was hard for the conservatives to raise money in on Bay Street. It was hard for the conservatives to get uh, business excited about things. The flip side of that should be that the liberals can talk to business, can understand the concerns of investors, can uh, encourage the private sector to step up to some of the big challenges facing the country. And with the exception of some AI firms and some dot-com firms, the liberals don't seem to be able to deliver what is really a traditional liberal strength, which is business sense. I would say that on, on the small business tax package, this is puzzling to me, and it's puzzling for a very specific reason. I talked to Minister Morneau, talked to his officials, listened to other liberals, and I find them confusing and evasive on a lot of those issues. I talk to people who are real experts in the tax world, nonpartisan experts in the tax world, and they're able to talk quite persuasively and clearly about what's going on here. And usually it's the opposite. Usually it's in, 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 the, in the normal situation, you have your outside experts talking in an opaque, complex way because they don't care about the messaging, and people in the government have honed, honed the message to the point where they can get it across. That's not happened here. So that, to me, is a failure of political communication. Politics is about communicating. That's what politics is. You know, if you're doing it poorly, you're doing politics poorly. It's on these very uh, issues that matter to a lot of Canadians that they're communicating so poorly, especially just look at the employee discount issue this week. They could have quickly come out and said, no, this is a CRA acting on its own. We don't agree with it and leave it at that. Instead, it festered for at least a whole day before they actually took action. And $200,000 to uh, design the cover of a budget. If you are making, you know, the median income in this country, then you and your extended family will work for several years to pay down, yeah. to come up with enough tax revenue to pay for the cost of that, that, that budget document. That's not a trivial thing. Once again, I get back to this idea, is there, is there anyone in, the, in this government who uh, says, well, no, that's a bad idea. Spending that kind of money on this kind of, kind of thing is a bad idea. 
All right, so let's um, finish off here talking about NAFTA. You know, President Donald Trump has talked about killing it. He's thrown almost every option at the wall to see what's going to stick, maybe try and influence negotiations. Uh, Canada and Mexico are now saying we're not leaving the negotiating table, even as we see U.S. proposals that seem to be proposals that Canada and Mexico just cannot agree to. So where are we with NAFTA right now? I think we've come to a, a, a really important crunch point, possibly turning point in this. And it has to do with something very straightforward, not straightforward, but something very precise. And that is rules of origin for auto manufacturing. Almost every important part of this deal, you could imagine ways to finesse it. Oh, dispute settlement stuff. Well, that's a complex field. We could probably agree with the Americans on a new dispute settlement rule. Oh, government procurement. Well, that can always be kind of shaded around the edges, always has been. But darn it, rules of origin for auto parts. The Americans are asking for 50% American parts. 85% North American parts, which is way up. It's about 60% now for North American and no special U.S. quota. So this is dramatic, precise change that would hammer auto sectors in, in Ontario and Mexico. That's basically what we're talking about. There's no getting around that. There's no finessing it. So either the Americans have to back down substantially, very hard to imagine Donald Trump doing that, or Canada and Mexico have to somehow now think of a way of either of staying at the table while not really talking about that. That's what it boils down to. It's come early enough now that I think that the next couple months are going to be very awkward, very, very awkward. How do you stay at the table with that deal breaker looming over you? And it's almost getting to the point where the Canadian government needs to fall back to the, to the post-Trump stage of this, which is once the president announces that he's going to abrogate the NAFTA treaty, yes. that has to be ratified in Congress. And all of the extraordinarily diligent work that this government has made has done to make friends a, a, across the American political culture would then come into play. Do we have enough friends in Congress or just enough realists to hand Donald Trump a defeat on NAFTA cancellation? because I think that's what it might come down to. Thank you very much, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Gaddis, McLean's senior writer, Paul Wells. Coming up after the break on McLean's On the Hill, political cartoonist Terry Mosher is here for a fun conversation about his craft that you won't want to miss. Welcome back to McLean's On the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief, for City News and Rogers Radio. Some of the most iconic images of Canadian politics from the past 50 years have come from the barbed pen of Terry Mosher. The Montreal cartoonist, better known as Aislinn, the name in which he signs his work, was in Ottawa this past week for the opening of a retrospective of his work. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes caught up with him and asked about everything from drawing sex jokes into his cartoons to being based in Quebec to how the internet has changed his craft. Most people in Canada know your images as Aislinn, but can you, do you mind if I ask you just to sketch Well, usually if they're 65 or 70. <laughs> no, actually, do you think so? Because I actually, well, no, I'm going to get to this, but I think your, your images are actually shockingly not old fogeyish, right? You have a very contemporary edge to the way that some of your recent stuff, but don't, don't jump ahead to that yet. Let me just, for people who, who need to know, be a refresher. How long have you been cartooning? How did you get into the All game? right. My name is actually Terry Moser. Yeah. I use the pen name Aislinn, which is my, my elder daughter's name. And I started that years ago in Quebec City when I started drawing cartoons as a joke. Uh, and now it's my professional name, yeah. Aislinn. 
So I work primarily for the Gazette in Montreal and have for a long time. This is actually my 50th year of cartooning. But I've also freelanced for a lot of people, including McLean's. Yeah, we're proud of I used to, used to do a lot of work for McLean's. Uh, they, they even sent me to the Canada-Russia Hockey Series in 1972, which wow. gives you an idea of how long I've been around. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's who I am, and I've got what I consider to be one of the best jobs in Canada, just criticizing our people, but at the same time loving them. Let me ask you a couple of questions about uh, the basis of your particular kind of cartoon. You have a very particular voice, and tell, tell me if this rings true to you. I look at your cartoons, and often what it seems to me you've done is you've taken a phrase, either a quote from someone or a phrase that's in the air, and you've given it a visual kind of counterbalance or counterpoint, usually pretty funny, sometimes very pointed them. Does that make sense to you the way Yes, I'm it makes sense. And also, sometimes I've even invented them and they become part of the language. Such as? My most famous cartoon was after the Parti Québécois was elected in 1976. I had René Levesque pointing out, saying, Okay, everybody take a value. Like, One of my favorites. And okay, but that has become part of the political I language. And exactly. I've heard reporters say, I've heard reporters say back in 76 when Rene Levesque said, okay, everybody take a value. <laughs> the, the Toronto Star, I remember running a story like that. In any case, uh, you're absolutely right. I really uh, like to pay attention to something that I feel has resonance. For example, when, when uh, Jean Drapeau uh, said the Olympics can no more have a deficit than a man can have a baby. I drew him on on the telephone, very pregnant, to Henry Morgenthaler, a well-known abortionist at the time. So, yeah, I like that, because I think very early on, I had the sense that a good cartoon that's remembered has to be based on something of some importance, some relevance, or an individual. Let me ask you about something that sprang to mind for me when you mentioned the famous cartoon of Drapeau expecting. Um, <clears throat> Quite a few of your, car your cartoons have a kind of sexual edge. Not all of them by any means, but that comes up, and I know it's been controversial. Can you talk a little bit about when you show politicians in bed, when you showed, I think you have a cartoon that was never published of Bill Clinton where his saxophone has taken on a certain dimension. Uh, Quite a dimension. It becomes Bill Clinton's penis, basically, in your cartoon. Exactly. So, so what's the, tell me about writing cartoons that have a sexual edge. I'm proud of that sexual uh, reference that comes up quite often in my cartoons. I'll tell you why. Nobody had done it before me. Uh, you can't think of a Duncan McPherson cartoon in history or anybody who had any kind of sexual references. Uh, the first cartoon that got in was controversial, but was by mistake. And it was Jean Drapeau in bed with René Levesque saying, I'll be gentle. After, uh, I won't even go into the details, but... There was no way the Gazette was going to print this, but it got into the newspaper by mistake. <laughs> because both the editor and publisher were out of town, nobody saw it. Oh, perfect. It went to the composing room and it got in. The following day, they were all set to fire me. This was in 1977. But then the reaction from university professors, from cab drivers, from hairdressers was, have you seen that phenomenal cartoon in the Gazette today? And the, even in the Francophone community, they were just stunned by this cartoon that the Gazette yeah. who was thought of as a sort of a, a conservative paper would print it. Wow. They took a look at that. Remember, they're in heavy competition with the Montreal Star at the time, and they said, look, this kid, back then I was a kid, uh, is, is selling papers. Right. 
So they said, let's let him run away with this. So then the, the day after the uh, Levesque uh, lost the referendum, uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau, they're both in their underwear saying, did the earth move? Yes. So, and those have always proved to be very popular cartoons. You're, so you're absolutely right, it's good observation. Let me ask about being based in, in Quebec for your whole career. Um, many of your cartoons have a national resonance, but some of your best stuff is very much about the particular dynamic of Quebec politics and the social dynamic of French-English tensions, that kind of thing. Well, with all due respect to, to English Canada, the rest of Canada, you know, Quebec has, has been the most interesting place to be in Canada for the last 50 years. There's no question about it. I mean, the rest of the country is a wonderful place, and BC has its moments, and mm. Alberta more recently, even Toronto with Rob Ford. Mm. But overall, um, you know, Quebec walks off with the prize for the most interesting political activity. How do you feel you're, you're seen by French Quebecers reading you? I mean, do, do, they, do they view you as... How are you, do you Not, have an idea how you're seen? Well, originally, of kind of uh, in a derisive way, because I'm not a huge federalist, but I'm not a separatist either. So it's very uh, cliquish. So for quite a few years, uh, the Parti Québécois in particular, the heavy-duty nationalists, uh, didn't uh, didn't approve much of what I was doing. But that's changed. And there's a new maturity in Quebec. And I think I'd like to credit my fellow cartoonists, particularly in Quebec, of learning Quebec, learning to laugh at itself. Hmm. Particularly Serge Chaplot, who's one of my best friends. Really? He works at La Presse, and he's a tremendous cartoonist. He's worked. He doesn't like to admit it, but he's worked for almost as long as I have. What? Come on, <laughs> not that long. Now, uh, he, uh, he also has a very successful television show where they're poking fun at Quebecers. So Quebecers have learned to laugh at themselves mm. as opposed to uh, poking, pointing at the other guy, saying it's always their fault. Right. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of Quebecers, particularly this museum show right. um, that I had in Montreal, have taken a second look and they really enjoy the work, right. especially the historical aspect of it. And a lot of younger people are saying, wow, this is really, it's a trend that I saw. Your, your current work and recent work mm -hmm. um, strikes me as being, um, it, it seems to me that you've responded to what's visually in, in the air, as it were, like in, in a way. Has it changed? Has yep. technology and the internet and all that stuff changed the way you actually look at things? I don't mean figuratively look at things. I mean literally the way you see things. Yeah, and, it's not, and also how I, I render things. It used right. to be, uh, remember that when I started out, you couldn't even have grays in the newspaper. You had to have some way of inventing grays. And I did with the cross-hatching, the grease, the like ink, a pen ink and an ink uh, crossing each other to create grays. It's quite effective in print. Yeah. But on a computer screen with 72 dots per inch, it disappears. Mm -hmm. So I began to realize that when the internet came along and I more and more and more I've started to draw for how a cartoon appears on a computer, computer screen as opposed to how it appears on a printed page. Right. Now I still love to do the cross-hatching, I, what I do is I experiment a lot more. It's nice at 75 years old to be experimenting with different techniques. Mm. And particularly, there's a thing called sampling, just like in music, where you find objects on the internet, and it's a recontextualization process, and pull them together, 
uh, to create a, a, in effect, the new collage. It's like a collage. I was going to use that word. It's like a, you have photo elements in your some of your stuff now. All that kind. Yeah, of all thing. I can. You know, one. Th I did Stephen Harker as King. I think when he got his majority. And the thing is, you you, you say, well, it's a photograph, but it's really wonky and weird, <laughs> and it is because I took 14 or 15 different elements, made his hands very small, the queen is in the background, I changed her face with a certain kind of thing, uh, and it's really effective on a computer screen. That was Montreal political cartoonist Terry Mosher in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill. Thank you.